Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Now we are uh, doing an interview today, and uh, today we are talking about Unrigged, how Americans are battling back to save democracy. That's the name of the book. The author is David Daly. Uh, so we have him on the line. Hello, David. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Alan, Joe? Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're more than welcome. Um, I was just going to say, now, um, what... What encouraged you to write this book? You know, it's a great question. I had I had written an earlier book about partisan gerrymandering um, with a title that probably unfit for a, a family radio show because uh, a partisan gerrymandering is also unfit for, for partisans for <laughs> a family radio show. Um, and it was a depressing book, you know, it was really a downer, uh, because the combination of gerrymandering and a lot of the kind of voters suppression that had followed that had turned a lot of our states, you know, deeply anti-majoritarian. Um, and it was hard to see kind of a way out of it, um, with politicians sort of so safely insulated from the voters, it was hard to do anything to, make a change. Even a majority of voters couldn't do that. And um, I would go around the country talking about the book and there'd be rooms full of people who wanted to make change. And sometimes I felt like I had this dark cloud over my head and I wanted to get rid of that dark cloud. And uh, I looked around the country and just saw all of these inspiring stories of people who 
were not daunted by the long odds. They were pushing back against these big structural problems in our democracy, and they were building real movements, and they were nonpartisan movements, and they were coming from regular citizens, not from you know, uh, politicians from above. Uh, and I found it so inspiring and just realized we didn't need another book about how democracies die. You know, bookstores were filled with those. I thought well, we needed to hear about the stories about Americans who were teaming up, pushing back, fighting back, and winning and trying to, you know, paint a better future. So what are those big structural problems in our politics that, that you identified that need to be pushed back against? Really, this book started um, with a woman named Katie Fahey in, in Michigan. She was 27 years old and worked at you know, an environmental um, recycling group in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And a couple days after the presidential election in 2016, uh, she had Trump voters in her family and, and Bernie and Hillary voters in her family. And I think she was already kind of you know, worried about uh, turkey and mashed potatoes flying through the air at Thanksgiving. And she went to Facebook and she wrote, I'd like to do something about partisan gerrymandering in Michigan. Um, if you want to do this too, join me. Um, and this goes viral um, in a really weird way. Um, and she ends up building this movement of about 4,000 volunteers and they go out and they collect 430,000 signatures. It's the first time in Michigan history that um, a constitutional amendment makes the ballot without someone hiring paid petition gatherers to go out and collect those signatures. And they put it on the ballot and they overcome money from the Koch brothers and they overcome money from uh, the, the Chamber of Commerce and the state, the the Ross family, and they win with more than 61% of the vote out there. So you've got to get Democrats, Republicans, and Independents to win at that level. Um, and the partisan gerrymandering had been a huge problem in Michigan. Um, you had had uh, voters who would favor Democratic candidates statewide in, in every election out there, and yet you had this legislature that it was impossible for a majority of citizens to um, uh, turn that into a majority of, of seats in the legislature. Um, and what you will have in 2021 are, you know, actual citizens drawing the district lines out there. So it'll be this huge change. Um, you know, so some of the things I chronicle in the book are these fights you know, against partisan gerrymandering. I went up to Maine and chronicled the fight for uh, ranked choice voting which is where citizens you know, get the ability to, to rank the, their top choices uh, instead of simply choosing one person. Um, and Maine had had this long tradition of independent candidates and third parties. They've had third-party governors and U.S. senators, except it was becoming kind of a problem in that they were getting so many candidates on the ballot that folks were winning these elections with 33, 34% of the vote, and we're getting, you know, an extreme candidate that was getting elected that two-thirds of, uh, of, of, of voters didn't want. So they said, we can protect 
our tradition of independent politics if we allow people to rank their choices. Um, go one, two, three, make it kind of like an instant runoff. Um, voters get more choice, and we end up with the person that you know most people actually you know want to have in office. And the uh, political establishment in Maine uh, fought this hard, uh, Democrats and Republicans. They essentially you know, wiped it out in, in the assembly after, after voters passed it. And voters applied something called a people's veto. And they went out and they collected signatures and did a people's veto and, and put it back on the ballot a second time where it won again. So, so voters really you know, forced this to happen. Went down to uh, Florida. Um, and Florida has the uh, toughest laws in the country about former felons who've gotten out of prison not being allowed to win their voting rights back. And this had really disenfranchised 1.7 million people there, just 10% of the adult population in Florida. Um, you know, folks who had served their sentences were back out, paying taxes, deserved to have their voice in civic affairs back, um, just as it would be in you know, 47 or 50 other states. Uh, and you had this incredible moral movement there, the black and white Democrats and Republicans. This one actually uh, saw the uh, Koch brothers and the ACLU t- uh, teaming up, uh, you know, Trump voters on, on Harleys and uh, radical criminal justice reformers on the other hand, and they managed to uh, win this constitutional amendment there with 64% of the vote. Uh, you know, so, so, so you know, a question that's about race and, and voting um, wins with almost two-thirds of the vote in a state that, that's going pretty red. Uh, so you were able to see this kind of moral nonpartisan movement come together around voting rights and fairness. And I think that that happened around the country in a way that ought to you know, show us that perhaps our politics are not as polarized as we think. Yeah, none of these victories are ever that clean, though, right? I mean, here in Florida, yeah. I mean, they, they, I think it was the uh, the people passed uh, the idea that felons would, would gain their rights, and then the new governor sort of did everything he could to sort of take those rights back um, by requiring that, yeah. you know, if they owed any money to the state for their incarceration or any court fees or anything that they couldn't vote, which is almost like a poll tax. Um, mm-hmm. But it just shows you that, you know, there, there are, there is an entrenched establishment who, who really wants to um, do whatever it can to maintain whatever advantage it has at any given time. And they're ha- they're happy to you know, sacrifice people's rights uh, for that advantage. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, the history of voting rights in this country is not a straight line towards progress. It is, you know, it, it zigs and zags. And if we had settled any of these issues, um, you know, we didn't settle these issues by passing the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments after the Civil War, we didn't settle these issues with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, and they didn't get settled in Florida when uh, 64% of voters restored felon voting rights. You know, the legislature continued to sort of monkey around 
with this after the fact. Um, but the courts have stood up down there, uh, and it appears that um, um, the citizen amendment will be allowed to go forward. I imagine the U.S. Supreme Court will get the uh, last word on that. But um, they certainly did add what appeared to be a poll tax on top of on top of that. And Florida is one of those states that's done a lot of cash register justice. Um, and but even in the worst case scenario, there if you if you held back all of those voters who couldn't, all of those citizens who could not afford to pay those fines and fees, you'd still have somewhere between three hundred and fifty thousand and seven hundred thousand voters. Uh, who were eligible to vote, who were not, a year and a half ago. So uh, it's certainly a, you know, a step and a half forward and then a half step back. Um, mm-hmm. And that's politics. So what about gerrymandering? I mean, there, this has been an issue that's been around for a long, long time. It seems like there is no good answer to drawing congressional districts within states. I mean, there are no natural bounds. It's not like a state where, you know, it's clear that the senator represents the people within that geographic boundary of the state. Here, these are sort of unnatural boundaries that have to be withdrawn potentially every every 10 years, depending on the census. I mean, is there a best way to do this? Um, and what are the problems that you think need to be avoided in, in the drawing yeah. of congressional districts? There are some some better ways of doing it. And I think what we also want to remember is that there are also the worst ways of doing it. And (laughs) right now, America has really cornered the market on the worst ways of doing it. We allow our politicians essentially to draw these lines and to choose their own voters. And no other modern democracy in the world allows that to happen. It's just, it's just, um, you know, it's, the ultimate fox garden, the, uh, our collective hen house. Uh, it's, you know, it's a major conflict of interest. Uh, and when one party has the ability to do this on their own, uh, you end up with wildly unfair lines in that party's favor. Uh, and voters in that state are stuck with them for a decade. And, and both parties have done this for as long as we've had politicians in this country, right? Um, you can trace gerrymandering all the way back to Patrick Henry trying to keep James Madison out of the very first Congress down in Virginia. It gets its name in 1812 when the governor in Massachusetts, his party draws these uh, state Senate districts around Boston in such a crazy convoluted way that uh, a political cartoonist thinks it looks like a salamander. His name was Elbridge Gerry, so you end up with the gerrymander. Um, but what has happened is that the technology is now so good and the data is so precise and the, the map making software so sophisticated that the gerrymanders of politicians were able to draw this decade are just dramatically stronger um, and more difficult for voters to undo than any other gerrymanders in our, our history. Um, no other map makers have ever had, had access to this, level of computing power uh, and just reams and terabytes of, of extraordinarily granular data about voters uh, that they're able to use to go up and down streets and make these decisions. So I think 
what we have to do is start by taking the power to draw these lines away from the politicians who are running in these districts. Um, you can establish independent commissions that do a better job of this. Uh, in California has probably the gold standard of, of, of commissions. It's not perfect by any means. I mean, it's hard to get all the politics out of something that's political. But what California does is it creates a commission of 15 citizens. You have to go through a rigorous application process to get on there. You've got an equal number of Republicans, Democrats, and independents. It has to be completely transparent. They go through incredible numbers of public hearings in which they listen to citizens about which communities of interest ought to have to stay together. Um, they draw all of the lines in public. They have to then, at the end of the process, write essays about why they made certain decisions as opposed to making other decisions. Um, and they require a supermajority of the Republicans, Democrats, and independents on the commissions. There has to be a supermajority within each of those groups backing the map for it to move forward. So the Democrats and independents can't team up on the Republicans and, and cram a map down their throats or, or any two groups that, that can't do that. Um, and so in many ways, it sort of it forces transparency. It creates consensus. Um, in some ways, it's kind of a politics we'd like to have in this country, right? I mean, imagine that people are assigned a, a problem to solve and they have to sit in a room and listen to other experts on the process and try to solve it together uh, and then and come to a, an agreement. Um, so if we could come up with a transparent process that actually mimics the kinds of politics we would like in the drawing of our districts, it just seems like it would be a wonderful win. Well, I mean, that's that's talking about process, but the question is, sure. for me, what would be about outcome? And yeah. it's it's if if I was a, polit a sitting politician um, who wanted to stay in office, I mean, I would want to draw districts that kept people who you know consistently voted for me together, and then write out any out of my district anyone who who didn't. <laughs> Um, but but those but that's always going to be there. I mean, you are always going to have communities um, that are, I, I guess, politically segregated in the sense that you will have, you know, Democrats living in one place, Republicans, you know, living in another. Um, and there's not much you can you can do about that. So you're still sort of drawing there. So what? I mean, even if you have a transparent process, what does what does that process get you if you still wind up with some districts that are going to be all Republican or, or consistently majority Republican or, or vice versa, consistently Democrat. I mean, what what do you think should the policy goal should be? Should we have 50-50 mixed districts? Should we have um, uh, districts that are that are far more diverse, either politically, demographically than they are now? I mean, what what can be done? Um, I guess to achieve some particular goal. I mean, what is the goal? More competitive districts. Um, I think it's a great question, and I think it gets to the heart of a lot of this about gerrymandering. Um, I mean, drawing districts is really a question of values. It's it's a question. Um, 
representation and how you imagine representation to be best defined. Uh, and I think that you've mentioned several different ways that you could define representation. It could be more competitive districts. It could be districts that hold specific communities of interest together. Maybe there's an economic or a cultural interest uh, that needs representation. Uh, maybe it is holding specific counties together. Perhaps it's compactness or continuity. Um, uh, other folks have talked about uh, trying to create um, um, an outcome in the state that actually mirrors the, the political sensibilities of the state. So, you know, in, in, in Maryland right now, for example, there are eight districts and Democrats have seven of those eight districts. But the state has a Republican governor, one of the most popular Republican governors in the country. Uh, so, so clearly there are plenty of Republicans in Maryland, but they hold 12.5% of the state's congressional seats. So you've got something is out of whack there. You know, it's the same thing in, in North Carolina, where there's a Democratic governor and Republicans control 10 of the 13 seats there. You know, Democrats drew the lines in Maryland to give themselves 88% of the seats. Republicans drew the lines in, um, in North Carolina that give them about 80% of the seats. And when you have a fair statewide election without those lines, folks choose the other party. Uh, so there are lots and lots of ways that you can measure this and try to get a better outcome. Um, I mean, I think we talk sometimes about geography and the big sort, Democrats, being, you know, in big cities, Republicans being spread out more consistently. Uh, but I think that that doesn't really get in the way necessarily of drawing fair districts. Um, you look at a place like Pennsylvania, uh, where, you know, it's often said Pennsylvania is, um, you know, Philadelphia on one side, uh, Pittsburgh on the other and Alabama in the middle. Um, and that was what Republicans said as they tried to defend a map that they drew in 2011 that gave Republicans 13 of 18 seats in, in you know, probably a bluish purple state. Uh, and they said, well, it's just the natural geography of the state. There was, there's no other way to do this. Uh, and when you put those maps, uh, you know, when you had academics create more than a billion neutral maps and all of them were less partisan than the ones that the, the politicians came up with, a court finally calls those districts unconstitutional, requires a new map. They bring in a neutral special master, an academic out of Stanford, who draws a map. Uh, it's more contiguous. It holds more counties together. It looks more normal, uh, and it's also more competitive. It's a 9-9 map now. So you go, even in these states that appear to be kind of, you know, geographics and demographics might get in the way of, of fairness, but it's not the case when you uh, sit down and draw a fair map. 
you can do something that actually reflects the politics of a place. And I think that, that that's really what you want to have. You want to be sure that um, uh, a delegation reflects the real political mix of the state and that a majority of voters always have the ability to turn that around. Now, I, I, I guess one concern I, I have with this, and I'm, I'm all, you know, I'm all for not having crazy districts that are designed to advantage powerful incumbents, um, is that we, we sort of wind up thinking about process over policy, and it's sort of well, how can we get, you know, a particular outcome between two parties, as opposed to how can we get better policy? Or how can we get policies that people want, even if these policies are terrible? <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I, I guess I, I sort of see, see myself as somewhat a, as a realist when it comes to democracy, knowing that there are, you know, as good as democracy is, it's only better than the other forms of government, yeah. and it doesn't. It, it's right. a it's a process that doesn't necessarily guarantee anything good. Um, so we can we can redraw districts, but. At the end of the day, if we're still getting lousy policy, then, then then what have we really gotten? Well, I would say that there's a connection between lousy lousy districts and lousy politics, um, because what this what lousy districts do is you end up with these uncompetitive races. You have general elections in November that simply aren't competitive, so the only action it comes in the party primary um, because it's really, really hard to get a, a good challenger or a well-funded challenger in a race that they know they're going to lose. Uh, so you get all the action in the party primary, and these are low turnout, you know, summer races that essentially turn out at the base of either side, and you end up with uh, more extreme members, both on the left and on the right. Uh, and you incentivize those politicians to either go to Washington or to go to state capitals and not to be willing to sit down and compromise with anybody. You elect more extreme people and then you incentivize them to only guard their base because the only election they have to worry about is being primaried by somebody you know, even nuttier than they are. Uh, and so they govern in a way that is not representative of what people actually want to see. I mean, I think that there's, there's, there's broad agreement in the country on a lot more than we think there is. You know, I mean, even hot button issues, whether it's, you know, healthcare or, or immigration or, you know, a lot of these things, there's a centrist kind of consensus way forward. And our politics doesn't, like that, and uh, I think a lot of that has to do with how we elect our politicians. So, so what should we do going forward, given what you found in your book? I mean, you, there are citizen movements pushing for more democracy, fighting back against entrenched, you know, establishment interests. Um, what's the next step? I think we need uh, we need more of that. Honestly, is what so we need. Uh, we have 
I got to really be thinking about the the structures of voting because the structures of voting are have been just uh, crucial to the outcomes that we are getting. Uh, there is far too much anti-majoritarianism in our politics. I mean, right now you've got 59 million Americans that live in a state where one or both uh, chambers of the state legislature is controlled by the party that won fewer votes in 2018. That's one in five of us. Um, it's too many. Uh, so if we want to get back to a better politics, we've got to be thinking about redistricting a reform. I think that is, you know, in many ways at the, at the heart of getting a better politics uh, right alongside a campaign finance and, you know, changes to money in politics. Uh, and these issues are going to be all the more important as we head towards an election in 2020 in the middle of this the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we don't know what November is going to look like right now. Um, we look around and we see the primaries being postponed left and right, you know, in Ohio, for example, uh, where the governor postpones the president. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The primary the day before it's scheduled to happen, uh, you know, a court orders it open, and then the governor and the public health department say it's not safe. Or you look at Wisconsin, which um, has a primary coming up April 7, and they are still trying to do this in person, and it's um, they are 
are running into a lot of problems. Uh, I mean, imagine trying to vote in November if this is ongoing, if this flails back, and we all have to be lined up six feet apart from one another and someone's wiping down the voting machines after so what's the answer to this is the is would you would you argue that the answer is is just just mail-in ballots or or something like that i think we've got to be doing vote by mail yeah you know we have to be looking at how we expand vote by mail uh and and no excuse absentee balloting in such a way that um, a a public health crisis doesn't also blossom into a you know a full-blown a crisis of a democracy and um, you know a constitutional crisis. So how how do you see this playing out over the next few months? I mean, do you think that more and more elections are going to be canceled, or are they going to find other platforms on which to hold the election? Um, or do you think you know even if people have the ability to vote, they won't even care because they're too busy dealing with coronavirus stuff? Yeah, you know. Uh, a lot of states have moved April and May primaries to the first week of June. Uh, and what we're hearing right now is, you know, April and May are probably going to be, you know, shelter in place months again. I mean, are we really going to come back in June and, and line up at the polls? Um, I, I, I'm not sure we are uh, or whether that would even be, be safe. So, I mean, I think we've got to be spending these 200 a day is thinking about how important this presidential election is and safeguarding it. Do the primaries uh, even the primary, matter anymore at this point? I mean, does it? I mean, obviously Trump is going to get the Republican nod, and it looks like. Yep. You know, I can't imagine a, a scenario in which Sanders would beat out Biden at this point. Yeah, he still needs he still needs more delegates, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's an interesting question. What happens in the, you know? Do Democrats simply? postpone these primaries if, if the, they yeah. can't be done safely. Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. But um, what I know is that if this is still a problem in October and November and we are still trying to figure out how to vote, um, then it's going to become, you know, a deeply passionate and, and, and partisan problem. And we can avoid that if we can you know, settle on some vote by mail rules now and, you know, figure out the kind of nonpartisan ways to be sure that, you know, senior citizens in Florida are are safe uh, voting and, you know, blue voters in in, uh, in New York are safe, are safe lined up and that these problems aren't, aren't the case in, you know, purplish swing states like Ohio and Wisconsin. It's not a partisan issue. It, you know, it shouldn't be we've got to come together here and figure out how to do it. And they included $400 million in the, in the stimulus package to, you know, think about this, which was far less than the 2 billion that election reformers said they would need to kind of put vote by mail in place. A $2 trillion package can't include a 2 billion, essentially a rounding error for a democracy seems like a mistake. Um, some states already have vote by mail, um, and I think all states have at least some amount of voting taking place by mail. Um, so how much would it really cost, and what would be driving those costs to do that? I mean, you just have to print the ballots. Is that the issue? Uh, printing ballots is a, is a big issue. Uh, yeah. I think they say that's, you know, 
that printing balance, making sure that they're translated into every every language. Uh, uh, postage. Uh, you would want to include return postage on these. That that costs more money. A lot of states need a lot of additional equipment, optical scanners and the like, to uh, be sure that that they can process this. A lot of states are built for having you know a low percentage of absentee ballots, you know, maybe 10 or 15 percent in some states. If you up that to 85, 90, or 100 percent of the vote, they're not ready for that. Um, so they need more equipment uh, and the like. Uh, so, so there's there's uh, yeah. there are laws that that have to be passed. You know, in, in some of these states, uh, you know, right now you can do some kind of mail-in voting in every state, but um, there's, there's still a third of our states in which you need specific excuses to cast an absentee ballot. And believe it or not, a pandemic is not one of them. Uh, so uh, there's a lot that you know still has to be done. So looking forward to the next few months, I mean, what do you think has been gone right thus far in our politics, given the virus and what's, and what's gone wrong? Oh, it's a good question. You know, uh, I think that this has really exposed the need for us to modernize our elections. Um, I think so much of this, you know, as we look forward, we have an election in 200 days and we are not prepared to conduct democracy during a pandemic. And, um, it's easy to say, well, who could have imagined? But if we had a more robust vote-by-mail operation set up uh, that made voting easier, uh, you know, something many states do and that many countries around the world have already figured out, we would be in a better position right now. Um, and, you know, frankly, I think that our politics right now have been pushed to extremes and, and sort of towards the base of both parties, um, but especially in the, in the direction of the Republican base in many states. And what we're seeing, you know, is you have, um, you have a president who has been who I would argue has been behaving in office as if he is the president of red state America and of his base, as opposed to the entire country and has been thinking about his path to reelection as being kind of the exact same path that he, the, the same inside straight that he was able to the poll in 2016. And um, this was a president that did not want to face up to the real risk of uh, of this virus and kind of plan for it uh, because it seemed it would it would hurt his reelection uh, and you have kind of an anti science wing of that party that and an anti news media wing and they were kind of very happy to sort of call this a hoax manufactured by fake news media and a certain percentage of the country was inclined to agree. Uh, 
like yeah, I'll just give you some numbers on that because yeah. I actually polled on this yeah. last week. I mean, we have 30% who think that, that it's been exaggerated. And this was, we polled on this two and a half weeks ago. So 30% of the country wow. thought it was exaggerated to hurt President Trump. And that was the question we asked. And, mm. and the people most likely to believe that are people who really like Trump and pay attention to the news. So if they're, if they're getting that message, um, and they're inclined to believe what Trump says, then they're going to buy that. And then it's, it, you know, we don't have very good causal evidence yet because we're in the middle of a pandemic, but it looks like, um, those same people are the ones who are least likely to, you know, wash their hands, social distance, you know, and take appropriate measures. So, you know, there, there's a real danger there when you have people <laughs> spreading these, these conspiracy theories out there. So. I, uh, uh, let me ask you this. So what can we do to get better candidates? I mean, let's, mm. let's say that we had an amazing, you know, democracy that where the procedures were just, you know, wonderful. We could still wind up with terrible candidates. I mean, Trump might still get elected <laughs> even, even if we You're had right. better, yeah. you know, better methods of voting. So how, how can we, you know, have better people? Uh, I think that there's there's a little bit of um, of chicken and egg here, I guess, right? I mean, I think we have it's I think it's very much interconnected. Um, when you look at and so I hesitate to make another another structural suggestion, but uh, you know. I love ranked choice voting, um, especially in you know in in, in party primaries. Um, I mean, I mean, Democrats had twenty five different candidates this year, uh, and they sort of narrowed, forced it down really quickly to four or five, and then uh, before most folks voted, kind of forced it down to to two, um, and everybody kind of voted based on electability or these kind of, you know, strange notions that it's really hard to quantify. If you could put your candidates in order, um, you would end up with, you know, a better outcome and you'd have better candidates. Um, we end up with, I mean, 2016, you had the two most unpopular major party nominees of ever. Um, you know, Trump, emerges again as kind of a plurality winner. He was always winning 35, 40% in these, in these primaries. Most Republicans wanted someone else all the way to the end. Uh, if you had been able to do kind of an instant runoff, you would get a better candidate. You would end up with a stronger nominee, you know, a less extreme a nominee, um, and I think that, that this is the same thing in state legislatures, for, for, for Congress. Uh, in Georgia, more than eighty percent of state legislative elections go uncontested because people look at those races and they say, "I can't win because of the districts." So, of course, you're going to get lousy candidates. Um, you would get better candidates if people thought that there was a chance that they could win. In 2016, North Carolina and Wisconsin, a 50% of all state legislative races. 
completely uncontested. People look at these local races and say, I don't have a chance of winning here, so why bother wasting my time and my money? Um, we would get better races and better candidates, and then candidates, we were all, I think, a little bit prouder of if we uh, fixed our systems. Should people have lower expectations in terms of what they're going to get from politics? I mean, it seems to me that there's so many people who want our government to do all sorts of stuff, you know, whether it's address social and moral issues or economic issues and whatnot. It seems like the demands that people have are very high, and and they often go in, in radically different directions. I mean, should people just want less? We're certainly getting less. Um <laughs> Well, I, I mean, um, I would like to expect more competence, even if I don't yeah. get, you know, massive uh, legislation that does what I want it to do. I think we we don't have any right to everything we want out of politics, but I think we do have a right to hope that a majority of citizens can move their government in the direction that they want it to go. Um, and, and that seems like a basic enough, uh, enough principle. And we don't have that. Um, and I think we have to find a way to get ourselves back there. Uh, or else it's really easy just to lose faith in this altogether. Um, and then imagine the kinds of politics we would get if everybody kind of throws their hands in the air and says, there's nothing I can do here. Um, maybe voting doesn't matter after all. <laughs> um, you know, I think that that's just as big of a danger. I mean, I, 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 I mean, one thing I think that the coronavirus has exposed is that, you know, we can vote for people on our team and we can vote for people who tell us the things we want to hear, but competence mm -hmm. is a very different competence. Thing, and that and that seems managerial like something that yeah. yeah, managerial competence um, seems like something we don't really care about. We've destroyed, we've destroyed expertise. We've destroyed science. We've destroyed managerial competence. Yeah, there's there's you know uh, our faith in the news media, our our faith, in, you know, our faith in science, and you know, in experts um, has all. Deteriorated, you know, our faith in institutions and their ability to uh, to competently do the right thing. Uh, uh, you know, and a lot of that is is fair. Uh, a lot of our institutions have failed. Uh, the question now is, how do we improve them, <laughs> and and how do we survive? Uh, you know, a virus that really needs that kind of competence and authority and, and scientific credibility. Yeah, I have to wonder, how can we make primaries more about picking competent people? Or, or is, there, is there some mechanism that parties can have where they, you know, if you're going to run under their banner, you have to um, have some minimum level of, of experience before, before you can run under the party label? Yeah. I mean, look I mean, at Jay Inslee, you know? I mean, uh, I mean, Jay Inslee, the, uh, the Washington governor, uh, by all accounts, appears to be doing a... You know, I mean, I'm not here in Massachusetts. I'm at 3,000 miles away, but, I mean, it appears he's 
doing a fairly competent job of leading his state through this crisis that he kind of addressed it uh, forthrightly and, and at the beginning. Um, and he was in this mix of, of Democratic candidates, and he was one of the first to, you know, drop out. Uh, yeah, he did just about as good as Marianne Williamson, who <laughs> would, yeah, right. you know, I would say probably is not qualified to, to, to you know, to run. I would say probably not is, uh, you yeah. know, a, a generous <laughs> way of looking at the experience of Marianne Williamson. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, you know, but... I mean, I guess, are there anti-democratic things that need to be done to make sure that we have better, you know, managerial competence? I mean, should parties be in the business of saying, all right, a, uh, you know, a spiritual healer is not going to be someone <laughs> that we're going to allow to run uh, in our primary? Yeah, you know, I would have no problem with that. You know, uh, <laughs> she does not have, you know, the authority or the credibility to be on that stage. Uh, you know, uh, I still, you know, I do think if people were able to vote not only for one person, but to, to kind of put the field in order and to kind of use an instant runoff, you would, you would see a different kind of voting. And I'm not sure you would always see the most competent candidate emerge, uh, but I do think it would it would get some of those crackpots off the stage, um, and it would push us a little more back towards consensus, not a centrism per se, but that we would be able to settle on the person who more of us agreed on rather than just the most passionate 30%. And there's that passionate 30% in the Republican Party and there's that passionate 30% in the Democratic Party. And then there's everybody else who, you know, isn't, isn't looking at it through those, quite those same, you know, fevered lenses, um, hoping for somebody who can step up and lead and solve some problems. So if there was one thing that you think needs to happen between now and and November, what's that what's that one thing, that procedural issue that sort of needs to be clarified in the run up to the next election? A dramatic expansion of vote by mail, um, yeah. beginning with no excuse absentee voting for every American. Okay. I mean, and that's probably something that's, you know, I would say that's something that's doable. I mean, everyone knows how to do it. It's just a question of enlarging the capacity, you, you think, right? Congress could do it simply by passing a law that, you know, Congress has the, the ability to, to mandate that constitutionally. Um, they could pass a law giving, requiring all 50 states to do no excuse absentee. And let's start there. Uh, it, it has to be enacted carefully and thoughtfully, but there's a way to do it so that people don't feel like they're risking their health in order to exercise their the right to vote. Wow. You know, I was, I was just going to say, too, uh, money has a big influence on it. The amount of money that a candidate makes and brings in, um, you have to have so much support financially. And uh, so candidates like Inslee can't, couldn't go any further because he didn't have the funds. 
yeah, I think that's right. You know, I mean, um, and and Citizens United hasn't done us any favors out there, kind of giving you know wealthy Americans the ability to kind of pour billions of unregulated dark cash into campaigns without any any transparency at all. Uh, you know, on the other hand, the other hand, I suppose in some ways is kind of a democratized you know small donors and you know made it possible for some folks to run those races but you know again it tends to be the kind of the the candidates of the extreme of the passionate extreme that collect those you know small dollar donations it's not it's not Inslee as someone offering something as unsexy and important as you know managerial competence uh, we need a way to you know, raise money for managerial competence <laughs> at a small dollar level. Uh, and perhaps a virus, sadly enough, will be the thing that pushes us towards these reforms. I don't think much is going to look the same on the other side of this, and perhaps our voting systems will be among those those changes. So you think the election will go on as planned with the virus? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think that's the kind of question that should be keeping us up at night. Um, I don't see us making the plans we need to make quickly enough to head this off. And I, I worry very much that as we head towards September, October, um, and if these plans are not in place, it's going to be just as hard to conduct a general election in November as it is to conduct the primary in Ohio and Wisconsin now. Um, and then what happens? I mean, Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution gives the ability to appoint leg electoral college electors to uh, state legislatures. Um, are we heading towards uh, that in November and December? And in that case, uh, you're going to have gerrymandered legislatures in many of these swing states uh, that already do a poor job of reflecting the political opinions of those states in charge of in charge of picking electors. Um, so I think that's something that we ought to be um, doing all we can to avoid. Well, on that happy note. We will wrap up. <laughs> and now you understand that dark cloud that I thought I had over my head on that show. Yeah, just everybody. We we do these shows during the virus just to make sure that people feel happy. <laughs> we're, we're here to cheer you There's up. There's a lot of hope and optimism in this book. There, there really is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a good thing. Now, uh, do you have a website or something people can go to to uh, feel better? Yeah, you know, um, I'm Dave Daily Three on Twitter. You can find the book on on Amazon or your local bookstores nearby uh you know i don't have a, a a website collecting all this stuff but um you can find both books out there and your local bookstores certainly need the, the support right now fantastic and we, we all have, have lots of time to read yeah, yeah. and we, we'll have your book up on our website as well so people listening can I appreciate click, pick up the book and the book is called unrigged how Americans are battling back to save democracy. And our guest has been the author, David Daly. Thank you for being on the show. A pleasure. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, 
or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.